Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked a lot about the suburbs on this show, what they were, what they've become. There's a reason for that. It isn't just because they continue to serve as cultural and political flashpoints. It's also because I grew up in one, in a neighborhood just outside Minneapolis-St. Paul, in Minnesota. I rode my bike unaccompanied to my friends' houses down quiet, winding streets. In the summers, I'd gather with other kids in the neighborhood to play kick the can until the sun started to set and our parents would call us home. We organized and performed plays on one another's backyard decks to audiences of our kind adult neighbors who dutifully bought tickets and watched our amateur theatrics from lawn chair seats. We cut lilacs from the bushes that grew in our yards, made homemade bouquets, and sold them back to the owners for a quarter. I didn't live a life free of politics. They were a constant subject of discussion in my home. But my suburban childhood did have what sociologist Jesse Daniels described a few episodes ago as a nice white lady's feel to it, selectively distanced from issues of race and consequently complicit in systemic racism. Although I haven't lived in Minnesota for many years, I remain tied to it. My family still lives there. My political narrative, a flawed one I now realize, was deeply shaped by my childhood experiences. And the brutal police killings of black men that occurred there, first Philando Castile in 2016, then George Floyd this past summer, have hit particularly close to home. And they've made me wonder, If a place I once idealized as a sort of progressive utopia can't get it together, can anywhere? Is it possible to build multiracial progressive political majorities that can make racial justice a reality? And what specifically do white women need to do if we want to do our part? This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured and often frustrating politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election, when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. Like much of our country, I was shaken and sickened and outraged when George Floyd was murdered this summer. Like many, I joined demonstrations calling for meaningful police reform. I watched in horror as right-wing groups like the Boogaloo Boys used the peaceful protests in Minneapolis as an excuse to incite violence and division. And I listened as conservative politicians exploited that violence for partisan gain. Trump did it, of course. Frankly, that was expected. But he wasn't alone. In the days following George Floyd's murder, the Republican majority leader of the Minnesota State Senate, a man named Paul Gazelka, took to the Senate floor and demanded an apology. 
not from the police, but from the state's Democratic leaders for failing to curtail the violence that erupted. Where's, where's the apology to the moms out in the suburbs scared to death about what's happening all around them and seeing the glowing fire in Minneapolis-St. Paul? Where's the apology? I didn't hear Gazelka's comments directly. What caught my attention was the response to them. Local community activists immediately organized a social media campaign that went viral. That night, as the hashtag I am a suburban mom flooded my feed, I watched a diverse array of suburban Minnesotan women stand in solidarity with the protesters. I watched them reject so many of the labels we've talked about belonging to suburban moms, white women in need of protection, and say to Gazelka, not in my name. Minnesotans across the state have been coming together to demand change. Instead, Majority Leader of the Senate, Paul Gazelka, tried to use suburban moms like myself, like me, like me as a pawn, to divide and distract us from his failure to lead. But you know what? These are Minnesotans you're talking to. We won't be divided based on what we look like or where we live because we know a new way is possible and we're creating it together. That collective response didn't come out of thin air. It was the result of years of on-the-ground organizing, multiracial organizing, centering communities of color while engaging a wide array of community members. This organizing builds bridges across race, class, and religious differences. It doesn't shy away from direct conversations about race, but rather makes it central to the discussion. And as for us nice white ladies, well, this organizing requires us to do our own work and own our stake in building a more equitable and just nation. Okay, but how do you actually do that? To answer some of these questions, I sought out one of the best organizers I know. Doran Schranz is the executive director of Isaiah Faith in Action, a faith-based organizing group. She's been working for years to build coalitions and communities across Minnesota, my home state. So let's start with defining some terms. What is faith-based organizing? People's faith is a part of their identity and how they come into the public arena. There's a set of common stories, common theology, common teachings that you can draw on for acting publicly and for being a part of movements for justice and change that are incredibly powerful and can actually be part of what weaves people together across difference. By drawing on common narratives across religious traditions, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Doran and her team are able to build a shared language of activism. But the same thing that unites so many people, faith, can also alienate others. What is sometimes challenging about doing faith-based organizing in like the world that we live in now is how contested the role of faith is in the public arena. And for many people who come from kind of more secular, progressive movement building, there is a, you know, a sense of, of faith and public means conservative Christianity in public. <laughs> which has not always been, you know, in many people, is not seen by many as a source of liberative justice in the world, you know. But you have to remind people that, like, in the context of America in particular, I think, you know, there is, has always been a deep spiritual, especially like the liberation theology and the prophetic traditions of the faith 
particularly in the Black struggle in the United States. These faith traditions help establish a set of common values. But the goal of this work isn't just to unite people across dimensions of difference. Doran's ultimate goal is building a multiracial democracy. Which, you know, sounds good. But what does it mean? Or maybe more importantly, what does it look like? For me, I really see the political project of the United States and democracy as a completely unfulfilled promise. So I'm one of the people who sort of sees it as there is a potential for citizenship to be multiracial. We are a pluralistic, heterogeneous society that has not figured out how to have a political project that includes all of us equally. So that, I think, is this like constant failure that we inherit <laughs> as like public people, as Americans. And you inherit it whether you were born here or you come here at some point in your life. It's a terrible inheritance. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, it's our project. It's our responsibility as people to, in whatever ways we can, to be take up the mantle of public leadership that we've, we've inherited from others who have led it to say, we're going to try to constitute that. So a multiracial democracy requires political equity, solidarity among and between different communities, imagination for what could be, and a shared sense of responsibility for bringing these dreams to fruition. Doran channeled her sense of responsibility into her organizing group, Isaiah Faith in Minnesota. Groups like this aren't just political organizations working to elect specific candidates. First and foremost, they exist to solve community problems. They bring people together to help make life better. They run campaigns to enact local and statewide legislation for things like paid sick leave, affordable childcare, the establishment of sanctuary cities or states for undocumented people. But having the political power to do so requires strong grassroots coalitions. And it requires electing representatives who share those values, who don't engage in a politics of division, hatred, and fear. In the wake of the 2016 election, Doran and her colleagues observed some concerning trends. The most glaring was that while Hillary Clinton had, technically, won Minnesota, it was by no means an easy victory. She won, but it was about 40,000 votes. So it was the closest statewide presidential election, I think, maybe in decades. Accompanying her tight win was a rise in white nationalist organizing. <laughs> it was like an effective way to win elections and move an agenda to use, you know, black Muslims as scapegoats or to like talk about caravans on the border, even though, you know, in places where they probably haven't ever like met an immigrant, <laughs> you know, like, so, so we came out of the, that election vote, obviously alarmed by the direction that the country was going. But then in particular, we had a governor's race coming up in 2018 and it was going to be an open race. And our judgment was that it was going to be a referendum on whether or not this kind of politics could win statewide elections in Minnesota. And we felt it was of moral and public urgency that we ensure that that kind of 
politicized white nationalism would lose elections in our state. So um, based on that, we decided that we wanted to both build our own theory of how to how to win an election that was grounded in a multiracial emergent majority of Minnesota. But then what's the theory for what that looks like and what would it take? Um, what kind of narrative, what kind of messaging, what kind of politics, what kind of relationships, what kind of leadership, you know, you know, what would what would it take that could both inoculate certain subsets of white people from this like overtly racialized politics and offer an alternative of what it meant to be part of a collective political movement. This two-pronged challenge, pushing white people to reject racist dog whistling while calling them into multiracial collective, led to the Greater Than Fear campaign. Doran and her team canvassed door-to-door, held in-person events, sponsored local radio ads, and created social media memes, encouraging Minnesotans to reject racial and religious division. They constantly refocused their work to make sure that it spoke to people. It's not something you just do through ads, and it's not something you do just through political communications. It has to be relational. We have to have infrastructure in real places in three dimensions. And we felt like we needed to like influence the governor's candidates and how they thought about their strategy for winning. So based on all that, we built this faith delegate campaign, and we are a caucus state. Now, Minnesota, as Doran said, is a caucus state. It's no longer how presidential candidates are chosen. The state has moved toward a more common presidential primary for that. But the state still holds caucuses to help shape the party's platforms and choose delegates. Those delegates then attend state party conventions and endorse state and federal candidates, including governor. We ended up turning out 4,000 people to precinct caucuses. There were 500 really core grassroots leaders that we put through a six-month training, and they ended up organizing about 3,000 to 4,000 people to precinct caucuses and got those people not only to go to the caucus, but then to be their team, to go with them to the Senate District Convention, to elect them to the state convention. And that was an elaborate organizing process that could not have happened at that scale without the level of leadership development and investment in the kind of thing that we've been talking about for most of this conversation, because they had to do it. Like it was their political project. We ended up with 11% of the state convention. And I would say without our delegates there, the person who won would not have won it. And then we were able to pivot that infrastructure into an electoral, like voter engagement infrastructure that doesn't look like you're hiring a paid canvas. Um, it looked like thousands of people who were politically oriented strategically around a vision and had their own kind of path inside of it. So it really opened up our imagination about how do we reimagine what political organizing looks like. That experience opened Doran and her team's eyes to the fact that they could exert real political power. But getting Minnesotans to be greater than fear required something more, engaging white people at scale. A multiracial coalition, especially in a state as white as Minnesota, cannot work without them, without us. But there is, of course, a significant hurdle. 
this is not generally how white people show up. We still live in largely segregated neighborhoods. And while many of us may think of ourselves as allies in the fight for racial justice, the kind of change that Isaiah is trying to affect goes deeper and requires white people to show up as equally invested community members to, as Doran says, own our stake in building a more equitable and just community, state, and nation. Groups like Isaiah now have a lot of experience in helping white women, who make up a significant chunk of their membership, relearn words like solidarity and accountability in an active setting. The first step is identifying the cultural roles that are expected of us, based on our race and gender. Many white women do experience a sense of powerlessness, and we're routinely reminded of it. But we do have control over the choices we make, regardless of what we've been taught. Are we really so powerless? Then we need to consider how these assumptions have shaped our behaviors, especially in group settings. Like what it means for me to be a leader as a woman and then as a white woman is that you're always told to be adjacent to power, but a competent administrator of white male power, and then also an enforcer of the rules. Of, like a, a kind of sense that to be that administrator, you have to achieve a level of invulnerability and like hyper-competence, perfection, never make a mistake, and then sort of put that on the people around you that you might be leading or supervising because the anxiety is if there's any mistake at all, like if anything isn't perfect, there's a there's gonna be a there's gonna be a consequence that that you'll pay. The final step, and perhaps the most uncomfortable one, is reevaluating our motivations for becoming more politically active. As Doran points out, it's common for white women to take on the belief, the assumption, that they should not and cannot put themselves before others. We're socialized to be helpers. Like I help other people, I like advocate for other people. It's not about me, it's about other people, but it really is all about you. And <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's built on the assumption that you're not supposed to have any sense of your own self. Like you're not supposed to have a self-interest. You're not supposed, like that's not okay. And there's, there's actually are consequences for women if they express any public interest. So it's not irrational. You know, there are consequences for being public around at your own desire or something that you want in the world. It's like, I want to be seen, but I can't be seen. It's just all this, all that junk. So I actually think, ironically, like one of the best ways to equip white women is to get them to not think about helping other people, is to actually have the conversation that's about what about you? Not for him, not for others, but how about you take responsibility for what you want and you take responsibility for the truth of your own story and your own sense of like how you've been sort of subsumed into these roles. The question is, who are you? And you can't, you're actually not capable of being in relationship with people across race, so to speak, or across difference, 
until you account for that within yourself. Because then I'm, if I'm not helping you and I'm not managing you and I'm not enforcing something and I'm not caretaking, then what am I? Just that question starts to do the work. The first time I heard Doran talk about white women as competent administrators, rule enforcers, leading through hypercompetence, I immediately recognized someone, myself. I realized that those are the behaviors and roles that since childhood I've been rewarded for performing, where I've often been slotted professionally, even when it wasn't my natural skill set. And although I sometimes was frustrated by it or felt limited by serving as the competent administrator to a more powerful and usually white male leader, I never fully recognized it as a function of my social position as a white woman or that what I was experiencing was something more universal, or that there could be political ramifications for asking myself, what do you want? The notion that doing the work simply requires asking questions like, what do you want? Or how do you feel? Might sound a little too idealistic. Can a process of political engagement that starts with something so simple really affect our politics? Like tangibly? Yes, it can. In 2018, the Democratic candidate for governor of Minnesota, Tim Waltz, adopted the greater-than-fear messaging that was being used by these local community and labor organizations. He won a resounding victory in the state. And in 2020, Biden and Harris won Minnesota by 7.5 points, a huge gain from Hillary Clinton's razor-thin margin. 68% of college-educated white women in Minnesota cast Democratic ballots. That number, you probably already know, is much higher than the national average. Now, Isaiah and its fellow community organizations didn't accomplish that swing alone, of course. A lot of things need to come together for electoral victories to happen. But what this work does show is that there's a lot more nuance to white women's politics, to everyone's politics, than the exit polls reveal. And if we spend our time and energy making politics, as Doran puts it, relational. If we go out and organize, we can build the kinds of huge coalitions that have previously only existed in our imaginations. So conversations are actually impactful. But let's delve into that next step, moving from talk to action. Ai-jen Poo is a veteran political organizer who runs the National Domestic Workers Alliance and its sister organization, Care in Action. She's also one of the co-founders of Supermajority, an organization that mobilizes women as a voting bloc. And I asked her, as someone who has devoted her life to building power for domestic workers who are overwhelmingly women of color, is there value in organizing white women? This question is kind of a funny question to me because I'm an organizer. Our job as organizers is to build and to connect and and to win. And Julie, I really, really want to win. Domestic workers want to win. And women of color want to win. It's pretty clear that we don't win alone in this country. And that the scope and the depth of pain and injustice and inequity that we have to transform cannot be done in silos. 
Yeah. And it has to be done together. We live in a multiracial democracy, and I, I do believe that if anyone is going to figure out how to show up right and model what it looks like to have a healthy multiracial democracy, it will be a process that happens among women first. Multiracial organizing is really hard. It is really, really hard. And and it's complex in so many ways. I, I really think that we are all on a path of transformation. We have to recognize that our transformation happens in the context of moving towards shared goals mm -hmm. together. And that's gonna be challenging for different groups of people in different ways. Having white privilege in a country that has historically been so structured and currently so structured yeah. Yeah. by white supremacy, I think is a very particular place through which to engage in that process of transformation and organizing and campaigning. And there's a lot of that that women of color can't and won't be able to hold or help through. But being in motion together, I believe, is the context through which it works towards winning on shared values and shared goals. As an organizer, iGen wants us to move past conversations and past the performative steps of doing things like posting our support on social media. That, she says, is where the power of organizing really shines. I want to see us do more action together because I think that there's a unique kind of learning and transformation that comes from being in motion together. And I don't think that we win separately in the end, the big things that we really yeah. want to win. Now, is it easy? No, it's the hardest thing ever. It's yeah. so hard. And we don't have a blueprint and we don't have, unfortunately, great models. And I think that's what transformation in this period is all about, is about remembering that what we are trying to move towards doesn't currently exist. And so we have to be willing to make mistakes and experiment and most importantly, do the work and not get paralyzed. Just keep it moving and know that it will be hard to envision what we've never seen before. Exactly. So we're just going to have to kind of build it as we go. And sometimes that building means rebuilding. Fatima Gossgraves is the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. As a Black woman at the head of an organization that emerged during second wave feminism, leadership, for her, meant thinking critically about how they all did their work, about how they could make change from the inside out, White supremacy is a pretty intoxicating drug. That is clear. It's been clear across our history. And one of the things that I actually think a lot about, and I'm really grateful to those who are doing that really meaningful organizing work, is how you bring people along. We're in this interesting period of really rapid learning where people are learning about themselves, they're investigating past practices, 
they're open to forging relationships that are different from themselves. And it's really raising a question about if you do this, what has to change? Fatima has seen how uncomfortable it can be for white women who saw ourselves as leading the charge for others to realize suddenly that we need to take a step back, not away from the group, but actually into it for the first time. It's not a good feeling to see yourself in that new kind of light. The cure, I hope, for that will be in part community. That it will be people being together and deciding to work together for change, that it will involve learning together and being a little bit vulnerable with each other with a North Star of liberation for all of us, a deep understanding that one of your sisters being harmed actually harms you. For the moment that we're in right now to be meaningful, it will require something different from us. It will require white women to be willing to tell different stories about our nation, our democracy, stories that don't center us. Here's iGen again. You know, I've thought a lot about how we can fight to win policy. And if we haven't also fought for the narrative, our policy often falls apart or is incredibly vulnerable. We talk a lot about hearts and minds, but what we really end up doing is trying to change minds as opposed to reach hearts. And I feel like in, in the language of story and in the architecture of story, you can actually have many protagonists. The protagonists that we rarely see, women of color and domestic workers, you can put them in the center in a way that still tells the story but tells a story in a way that other people can really see themselves inside of it. And that's how I try to think about the organizing challenge that we have in this country, which is that we do need to create new protagonists and uplift new protagonists. But it doesn't mean that everybody else is not a protagonist also. We each have a very important and distinct role to play if we are to get our country back on track. It is about architecting that narrative where you put new protagonists at the center and sometimes they shift who's at the center and who isn't, but where everyone is still a protagonist. We've spent a lot of this series talking about all the forces that make this work so hard this vision of a just multiracial democracy so elusive. But I guess what makes me optimistic is that we have some control in making it happen. It's our decision whether or not to engage, to get more involved, to show up differently in our community. And when I talk with those who have made a commitment to making their community better, I realize how normal they are. These are women just like so many of us, with jobs, families, busy lives. They're doing it. We all could do it. And it makes me realize that in order to get to a different place in American politics, it's not just conservative or persuadable white women who need to come around. Something different is going to be required of us, progressive white women. Next week, for our final episode, 
we delve into the dangers of a certain kind of nice white lady, the nice white liberal, and the opportunity we have to do better. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler1. See you next week.